It's more of a barn than a chapel. It's on top of, it's in a camp called Fort Bluff up above Dayton, Tennessee. And I was there this week at a Johnny and Friends camp. Now, if you're not familiar with Johnny and Friends, it's a group that works with families that have non-typical kids. And since that's my family, I, I had a chance to be there. Uh, some other people from the church were there as well, and some as volunteers, some as families. But on the, on the, on the night that was supposed to be the talent show, gosh, if you'd met this girl, you probably would have been, she'd probably been invisible to you. She's in a wheelchair. You probably would have talked to her parents instead of her um, and, and probably wouldn't have taken her that seriously. Um, she can barely speak. There's severe uh, cognitive uh, delay and, and pretty significant speech impairment. And it was time for her to come up and give her talent. So the room was, we're waiting for her to, to come up. She, she rolled the wheelchair up. Her, her, her partner, the person that was with her that week, helping her out, brought the wheelchair to the front and they, they held a microphone together. And then they started playing music of the song you might be familiar with. Um, it, it's, um, it's a Christian song that um, I was looking for the, the title of it. Um, but they were, um, and they started playing a video of the, of the song. And she said that she wanted to, to praise God and sing this song to us. I don't have permission, so I'll just call her Sally. But Sally, you barely understood her when she said she wanted to praise God with her voice. And, and then the music started to swell. And she began to... And she started to, to, to gargle out words of praise to this music. And, and at first it was disarming. At first she... Um, and over the speaker, she would stop when the music stopped and started when it was supposed to, and she was singing with the woman that was on the video behind her. By the end of the time, you were more intrigued by her than the professional in the background because what you saw, her eyes fill with tears, looking up, thinking about Jesus as she sung about the goodness of God, and, and her hope in Christ. And as she sang those, those words that she truly believed, it was incredibly disarming. Now, I, I think the, the people here do great worship. I mean, I, I think the choir was here today, and, you know, Cole does a really good job. He actually wrote all the music parts this week. I mean, they do really good work. But that's the second best worship I've heard this week. The best worship I heard was from a disabled woman that most of us wouldn't have paid much attention to. But God had his eyes right on her. And God's ears were inclined to hear as she stumbled out words that were barely, barely able to be understood. It was beautiful. It was real worship. 
I very seldom in my life almost immediately seen something in the Bible that was so well illustrated in life that it was disarming. So the passage I'd like us to look at together today has to do with the difference between foolishness and wisdom. What it means to be wise and what it means to be foolish. What it means to be wise in the eyes of God, what it means to be wise in the eyes of man. You know, we live in a time where we are, we are we're gorging ourselves with information and we are starving for wisdom. Gosh, in 1945, it took 25 years for, for, for knowledge to double. In 2013, it took 13 months for knowledge to double, the amount of information that was available and that we had. Today, it, knowledge doubles about once a day. The amount of information that is just being churned out daily, and we are gorging ourselves on information, and we are starving for wisdom. And I think you find in this passage in Corinthians uh, an invitation to see that very differently than the way the world sees it. Maybe, maybe a way that is surprising. Maybe, maybe God's idea of wisdom is not information but a person. And that person is Christ. And maybe, maybe knowing him and him in you is the beginning of wisdom, real wisdom, and not just merely information. Well, before we talk about him, before we look at his word, let's talk to him. Let's pray together this morning. Dear Father, we come to you this morning and you know us so well. You know how often I try to pretend how smart I am. You know how we hide behind our, our accolades. We hide behind our, what little knowledge we have. We hide behind our power and our prestige and our, and our things and our activities. You sell a, a better product than that. We've bought into a cheaper idea of wisdom and a cheaper idea of life. And so this morning, would you meet us here? And you know everyone here. You know the people that are struggling to believe. You know the people that are wrestling with anxiety. You know the people that are full of fear. Well, you know us all. So for the people that are too comfortable, would you use this time to disrupt them? For the people that are disrupted, would you use this time to comfort them? And for all of us, use it for your glory and your great purposes. So we pray in the powerful, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. By now, you're probably already aware that we're going to be speaking from that famous passage in 1 Corinthians. By the way, you should know the reason I'm here today is that 
On Thursday, when I was coming back from Johnny and Friends, I got a text from Seth saying that he had COVID, I think for the 14th time. <laughs> and, uh, and he is such a good teacher, and he was planning on finishing his series on James, and he asked if I would be willing to speak. And I said, do I have to speak on James or not? And uh, he said, you can speak on anything you'd like. Um, and... And I thought about it. I asked the guys at primetime. We were talking about what would be a good thing for the church to hear. And their conclusion was you ought to speak from your heart since you've got that as opposed to just following the series and let's, let Seth finish the series next week. Or, and, and that's what we'll do. Because I was really surprised this week about how I've bought a cheaper product and called it Wise. And God's offering an amazing product into the world that looks foolish. The passage we're going to look at is in 1 Corinthians. And you know the story of Corinthians. One of Paul's favorite churches. And he spent quite a bit of time there. And it started out pretty well. But then he started getting news when he left to go to other churches that there was a lot of disturbances in, in, in Corinth. And they were fighting about it. And a lot of those disturbances had to do with people thought they were better than other people and kind of some self-righteousness and some people thinking that they were, you know, they were just uh, better than everybody else. It's, it's ironic. As time went on, the church didn't really learn the lesson that we're going to talk about today very well because it, actually 2 Corinthians, Paul has to defend himself. And the argument, the people that were the distractors for Paul were saying that he can't possibly be, he cannot possibly be an apostle because there's too much struggle in his life that how could somebody be um, an apostle of the risen king if they have so much struggle and sorrow and difficulty in their life? And so Paul actually has to defend himself with, of that. But we know that living in a fallen world, sorrow and struggle is inevitable. It's a matter whether it has meaning and purpose because you know Jesus and you go through that with him or whether you try to make sense of it alone and just become bitter and tired. Back to the text. So Paul is, is writing to the church in Corinth. That is, that's very, very, um, there's a little bit of controversy between the Jews and the Greeks. So the Greek philosophy is very big in the church in Corinth. And so they, they really are big on wisdom. And so I'm going to read the passage to you. I'm going to start just a little bit earlier than the text that will be on the screen. And then, then, we'll, then we'll, but we'll spend most of our time on the text on the screen. This just gives a little more context. So this is 1 Corinthians, first chapter. And I'm going to start in verse 20, and then we're going to look, spend most of our time on 27 through 31. So if you would, if you can, would you stand while we read the word of God together? Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Huh, the folly of what we preach. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, 
both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's found in a person. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the, wis- and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, starting in, starting, this is the part we're going to look at. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing that things are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, almost finished. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom for God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his holy word. I want you to know, we believe some pretty foolish things. We do. We believe that a 33-year-old virgin who died can teach us about sexuality, gender, and family. We believe that a little Jewish boy born of peasants in a barn was really God incarnate. We believe that that little boy raised by peasants had a menial job as a carpenter for a while. Not not that it's a menial job. If you're a carpenter, that's a good job, but... You get the idea. It's the God of the universe. And then at 30 years old, he begins a ministry, and he picks 12 people to be his leadership team, his action team, his people with his, that, that are going to follow his great vision. And they were the dumbest group of thugs you'd ever seen. They were fishermen, and they were not... Even after three years of being with Jesus, they were arguing about who was the best. They missed the point most of the time. I mean, they, they were, and that was his leadership team. He never got more than 200 miles from the place he was born. And then he went through a trial and was, and, we, and, and what we believe is that, that the God of the universe, we, that God let him be mocked and spit upon and lied about and humiliated that he drug his own cross. They, they made fun of him. They called him names. They, they made fun of what he'd called himself. And then they put him on blocks of wood and they killed him. And then we actually believe that something that was dead but rose again. But then he didn't rise as kind of this great king that took over and kind of made everybody pay the price for what they'd done. He came back and he was seen by about 400 people. And then he went to heaven where we believe that he's going to come back someday and on a white horse and clear house. That's what we believe. That's foolishness, unless it's true. 
That's foolishness. Unless it's your only hope for life and redemption. You see, the world calls that a, a fairy tale. They, they say it's foolish. And there's some people in this room right now who don't know Jesus. And you'd heard me say that and it's like, well, yeah, that's what you guys believe. I guess I kind of believe in God, but you come to think about it, that sounds kind of wild. Well, it is wild. But it's true. And you can't even know that it's true without the Spirit of God living in you. You actually need him to help you believe and to know that that's true. Because you can't even understand and interpret the word of God correctly without him in you. God makes what the world seems wise. Uh, God's foolishness is wiser than, will shame the wise, the wisdom of man. And so what you've got, by the way, just as a side note, Skylar was here today and just left. Um, Not sure why, but we appreciate your all's prayers. It's been quite a, Quite eight weeks for us, and he's going to be in the wheelchair for a few more weeks, and we really could appreciate your prayers, Mona's an incredible, we, we, what we found out in this is that um, I treat Skylar much better when people are watching. Um, when we were in the hospital, I was a much better parent than when people, when I'm just alone with him sometimes, and that Mona is a much better person than I'll ever be. Those are the two things we have found out so far. But please keep praying for Skylar as he's wrestling with, uh, with life. So with that, um, the, the idea that we believe a, we believe a foolish thing, um, and it would be foolish if I couldn't, there, and I found my place in my notes. Um, so what, what does foolish look like? Foolish looks like when you depend on the wrong things to make your life okay. I mean, it would be foolish to bet on a, on a bad horse. It'd be foolish to put all your money in Bitcoin. Um, it would be foolish, I don't even understand Bitcoin. I don't even understand how Apple Pay works. I, I don't understand. Where does that money come from? Um, It would be foolish to invest in something that doesn't really last and doesn't really matter. And so there's a beautiful moment that we're going to begin to look at together where he says, consider your calling. And he's talking to the the church in Corinth. And let me read that to you. In verse 26, it says, for consider your calling, brothers, parenthetically, it'd be sisters as well. Not many of you were wise according to the world. Now, he does leave a little room for a few people to get through that are really smart. Um, I remember um, when I was, I was at Reformed Theological Seminary for about 20 years as a professor. And I remember, I always was afraid they were going to realize I didn't belong. I was afraid they were going to figure out I wasn't as smart as them. And um, well, the truth is, they knew that from the very beginning. I don't think I, I hid that near as well as I thought I did. I think I gave up about 25 IQ points. And I remember 
talking to Bruce Walkie one day, and if you don't recognize that name, that's okay. That's a theologian that is probably one of the three smartest people I've ever met in my life. Uh, he is an Old Testament theologian that is just brilliant. I remember sitting talking to Bruce one day, and I said, Bruce, to tell you the truth, I don't think I really belong here. And he didn't say, no, Jim, you are the smartest guy here. He didn't say, no, Jim, you are powerful. He said, no, Jim, you have prestige. You went to the University of Tennessee for your PhD. Um, it's, it is funny, when I was applied for my, when I went through my interview process, you know, these guys are from Harvard and Oxford and all over the place. And since I'm from the University of Tennessee, they asked me about football. They said, well, do you like football? And I thought, is this a regular question at a seminary? <laughs> well, what Bruce said is, well, Jim, you were chosen by God to be here. And therefore, you have an important place here. You are chosen by God to be in this room. And therefore, there's a, there's, there's a purpose, there's a reason that you're to be here. Well, you get the same idea from Paul. Paul says to the people that a lot of you have spent your life kind of betting on your wisdom, how smart you are. Some of you have bet your life on your power, how powerful you are. For us, that would be how much resources you have, how much money you have, how much, how much people will do what you say. So some of, none of you have um, you know, people who live for those things. The, the third thing he says was none of you were of, of great prestige, or, I mean, of, of a great pedigree, that you, you didn't come from the great families. What Paul is saying here is Jesus chose you not because of all that stuff. He chose you because he loves you, not for what you could bring to the table. Jesus did not save you to use you. Jesus saved you because he loves you. And, and he wanted you to know that so that you didn't cheapen the gospel into God's lucky to have me. Yeah, he needed someone with my intelligence. Oh, he needed someone with my power. He needed someone with my pedigree. No, he didn't. And so he chose. And, and by the way, God does this throughout the Bible. In Deuteronomy, he tells the the Jews that he chose them not because they because they were the smallest. He he chose. Look at the disciples he chose. It seems that it seems that God chooses the unlove the unlovable and makes them lovely. Maybe maybe the gospel could be almost reduced down to that. That God chooses the unlovable and makes them lovely because Christ lives in them. Why? How much freedom you would have if you could quit trying to prove something to somebody. One of the most common questions I ask people when I do counseling is, what are you trying to prove and who are you trying to prove it to? You don't know how many 70, 80-year-old men are still trying to prove something to their dad who died 20 years ago. 
You don't know how many people I know that are, are living their life to prove something to somebody that doesn't even care anymore. I'll, I'll show that coach that cut me. I'll show them that I'm, my goodness, what an exhausting way to live. I got to prove something to somebody. See, if you understand the gospel, God says, you've already proven, I've already proven what matters. I chose you. You see, for most of us, most religions, matter of fact, every religion I know of, including the way we sometimes try to turn Christianity into, is behavior, 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 and then there's a verdict. I'm going to act a certain way, and then there'll be a verdict. That's not the Christian life. That's not the gospel. The gospel is there's a verdict first, and then there's an invitation to behave different. And the freedom that comes from the verdict first You've been declared righteous by the work of God. I chose you. You've been chosen to be my sons and my daughters. And, the, and, and when that is what is true, you don't spend the rest of your life trying to earn a verdict that says you're accepted and loved. Because that verdict was already given on the cross. Every other religion, and most of the time, we try to turn Christianity into, I behave, I behave, I behave. How many times have you heard, yeah, Christians, good people, go to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that it's not behavior, 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 and then verdict. It's there's a verdict, and then you're called. And if you're called, that verdict, that imputed righteousness is, is given to you, and then you behave. It's verdict first, behavior second, not the other way around. And the freedom of that. When I fail, I don't have to go back to zero. The freedom of that to, to not have to live for something that doesn't matter. Oh, the freedom that comes from knowing that I've been called. By the way, usually when Presbyterians preach this passage, they make a big, and, and, and we should. I mean, I'm a Presbyterian too. It's not like I'm not a Presbyterian. We'd make a big deal about the idea of, of, of God calling us, the idea of, of, of you know, the idea of what uh, the salvation is God's business. And, and that we could do an entire sermon. We could do an, an, an election based on this passage. But I don't think that's where I want to spend the rest of our time. I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about the difference between what it would mean to, to live not the world's wisdom, but God's wisdom. And so for that, I want you to think about a couple things that why does it say we should, uh, why, why do we say that God called us not because of what we've done, but because who he is? It says so that we don't boast. Now the word boast does mean kind of to brag about, but it also has the connotation of what you kind of hang your hat on. What do you boast about? When somebody says, you know, what do you, uh, what do, you do for a living? That's your identity. You know, your, what do you boast about? What gives you credibility? What gives you authority? What gives you um, anything? That's, what, that's kind of what we boast about. It's our, it's our identity. And God wanted these people in Corinth to realize what they're to boast about is not the little things they have done. 
but the big things God has done. And that when you boast in that, everything else follows into place. But when you boast in yourself, it's a, such a small story. Such a small story. Not a big story that ends with redemption, but a small story that ends in self. And so God invites us to, to live in this grand, grand and gracious place after the verdict has already been because we've been called. You look at what it says that people boast over, they boast over, I mean, the excuse me, people of the world's wisdom boasts over education, power, um, and, um, and pedigree. You don't know how many times, how much time I've spent in my life um, trying to put together my resume based on those things. What a waste. Because God's already put together the resume for his children. I love you. You're mine. And it's because of what I've done. You can live with a freedom, with a hope. Oh, you can live... And, and, and love and see the world differently. And what the world calls weak and unimportant, I will call beautiful and mine. And I, and God is a way of manifesting himself even in, oh, in the smallest of things. Well, quickly, what does it say that we get to, bo- that we are in Christ? And what do we get with when we're in Christ? And just, just stay with me just for a second because we're going to have to go really quick. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's the verdict. We're in Christ Jesus, who became the wisdom from God. So we get God's wisdom because we're in Christ. Righteousness, we get his righteousness, imputed righteousness because we're in Christ. Sanctification, we get his promise to finish what he started in us because of Christ in us. And then we get to be a part of his story, which is a story of redemption with Christ in us. And so this week, what I'd like to invite you to do is to be a fool for Christ. I'd like you to be a fool for Christ. To foolishly live knowing you don't have to impress anybody anymore. Because the one that matters has already declared you his and beautiful. Now, this week at the camp, I was the speaker. And I had people in the audience that had IQs of about 50 two standard deviations, three standard deviations below the mean. And I had people that were really brilliant. And I was supposed to present the gospel. And what we decided is we would just look at one verse together the whole week. And that verse was 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14. And it was amazing because everybody just stared at that verse and they tried to learn it and memorize it and think about it. And we... And at the beginning of every sermon, we, I would say, what's our verse for the week? And, and we'd give it out. And so we're going to do that right now. And I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you an opportunity to be a fool for Christ. Here's what the verse is. The verse is, be on your guard, stand firm in your faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Now, there are, there are emotions that go with that. And so in just a moment, when I say be strong, you're to all stand up, excuse me, 
When, they say, when I say be on your guard, some of your translations will say be watchful. And what you're going to do is all of you will stand up and you'll do this. Second, I will say, stand firm in your faith. And when I say that, you're going to stomp your feet. And then I'm going to say, be courageous. And you're going to make a courageous face, just kind of a, kind of a superhero kind of face. And then I'm going to say, be strong. And you're going to put your arms up like this. And then I'm going to say, do everything in love. And you're going to do this. Are you with me? Now, let's see if a good group of Presbyterians can be foolish for Christ. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14, it says this, be on your guard. Oh my goodness gracious, <laughs> sit back down. <laughs> sit back down. My goodness. Now, have you, hello, have you been listening? So we're, we don't have to worry about what we look like. We don't have to look, we don't, it doesn't matter if we look foolish. Because he declares us wise because of the wisdom of Christ that's in us. You have a freedom to be foolish for the sake of the gospel. So when I say be on guard, you're to jump up. You're to put your hand with passion over your shoulder. And you're to look around the room. And when I say stand firm in your faith, you're to stomp as hard as you can with your legs. Are you with me? All right. The verse we're going to finish with today <laughs> is found in 1 Corinthians 16 through 16, 13 through 14. And it says, be on your guard. Much, much better. Stand firm in your faith. Be courageous. Be strong. And do everything. Do everything. Do everything you do in love. You can be seated, my foolish friends. <laughs> Wisdom is not information. It is not knowing about Jesus. Wisdom is learning someone and not something. Wisdom is knowing and learning Jesus as a person in relationship with. Let's go out this week and be foolish together for the sake of the gospel because our world full of information is dying, gloated with information and no hope, no life and no real wisdom. And you can laugh and teach them that it's there in the person of Jesus Christ.